What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside this special spoiler cast edition segment of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. By clicking on this link, by listening to this introduction, you know what you're in for. Either you've seen Tenet and you're ready to dive into the nitty-gritty, or you don't care. And you're just ready to have it all spoiled for you. Either way, welcome inside our crazy brains and the crazy brain of Christopher Nolan. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Tenet. Boy, oh boy. Boy, howdy, as Paul likes to say. Boy, howdy. Boy, howdy. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because when, when we t- were talking about doing a spoiler cast, I was thinking, do I understand this movie well enough to know what might be a spoiler? There are definitely some spoilers here, for sure. Um, and I think it's actually when we get into the spoilers that the movie's brilliance sort of shines through, right? I, I know I just gave it a seven, but it really is on, on some levels, both a brilliant and a frustratingly dumb movie. <laughs> you know, I, I, think that, I think that you have some twists that work wonderfully and some twists that, frankly, I'm going to have to see this movie again to really fully appreciate. I definitely feel like Nolan made this movie very intentionally to be rewatched. Yes. Um, To be the type of film where like the conceit of the movie itself, maybe you don't understand what's happening in real time until you've watched it happen again in reverse. (laughs) You know, there's, there's a call back in the very last scene that makes you think maybe I will understand the opening scene, the opera house terrorist scene a little bit differently. Because when you watch the opera house scene as a first time viewer, Paul, you said this in our non-spoiler version. It was like, it doesn't make any sense. What? I don't know who anybody is, what anybody's motivation is, who's on whose side, who's not on whose side. It seems like there's actually three sides. And I don't know who's any of these three and maybe four sides at some point. It could be four sides. And and then it ends in the weirdest way possible. And then it was all real, but a test. Yeah. What was that about? Real, but a test. Does that mean that all those people died? Because they say all those people died. Right. The is dead. And yet it was a test. So did they kill them all because of a test? That sounds that sounds worse than algebra for sure. <laughs> right. That and and the fact that they tell uh, the protagonist, John David Washington's character, there are many others who didn't pass this test. Wait, you guys are just going around giving people this test wherein you 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 put like four different like you get some terrorists you recruit some terrorists to try to bomb an opera house and then you send and then you send in real police and then you send in some secret government agency people who you're testing and hopefully they're able you know hopefully as few people as possible die and the one person or two people who live we can recruit into this tenant program that was really actually all about recruiting you, John David Washington, the protagonist in the first place, because you're the one who's running it in the future. So why would, yeah. what? Yeah, it's, it is crazy, not so weird. It really is. And, and I take comfort in the fact that the protagonist 
doesn't know any more about what's going on than than we the moviegoers do for the most part. And in the end, he seems to have a pretty good idea of what's going on. He thinks that he is in charge. Now, I'm still a little skeptical, actually. I <laughs> is he really in charge? Is there another hand behind him? Um, it's a it's it's a fascinating mind twisting puzzle of a movie that is is equally great and incredibly aggravating all at the same time because i like yeah. you know what i'm under what i'm watching it was funny because shortly after all of that happens and you as the viewer are just completely in the dark as to who anybody is or why anybody's doing anything that they're doing you have no idea what anyone's motivation is you're introduced to a scientist character who, as she's ex- trying to provide the initial explanation to the protagonist, has this very subtle, but yet not very subtle clue, uh, piece of advice to the audience of, <laughs> you can't think about it. You just have to react. <laughs> that was what I found myself struggling with the whole movie is every time they would try to explain how this is happening and this other thing is going on or something occurred and I'm trying to make two you know heads or tails out of it. And I would get behind because I would want to, my brain would want to figure it out. Right. My brain would want to put the pieces together so that I could understand where we were going next in the story. But the story was not waiting for me to figure it out. Right. Right. It was, it wanted me not to think about it, but to just react. Yeah. You know what it actually made me feel like? And this is not a habit that I I make, by the way, but it reminded me back in college where sometimes you would you would go to parties and you would drink maybe a little bit more than you should. And you would start meeting people who you had no idea where they came from. You didn't really under, you didn't really know what they were all about as you were talking with them. And yet they sort of became your best friends during that party. I mean, I don't know if anybody else has had that experience, but, but you do have some of these characters who just sort of pop out of nowhere. Ives, Ives, who is the leader of a, who is the leader of this um, time army, essentially. Right. He sort of shows up and I, he was very confusing to me. And I don't know if you want to dive into to the very, very end, but... As it's the right place to start for a movie about going in reverse. Well, that's really true, isn't it? As So at the very end, they save the world. Time is okay. The bad guy's dead. Um and one version of the bad guy one version of the bad guy you've got you've got the protagonist you've got neil and you've got ives the leader of this this big serious military group and they're standing around they're they're disassembling the algorithm which is what is causing all these uh transports through time and they're trying to decide where to put these all and then all of a sudden ives there's there's this tension that Ives is supposed to kill them both. And yet he says, I'm not going to do that. Go about your business. But if I find you, I will kill you. And then they say, well, you're not going to look very hard for us, right? Oh, I will. Why all of a sudden do they need to kill each other? I didn't understand that at all. Did you? No, especially because they had just explained or they were just about to explain that it was the protagonist who was supposedly running this whole operation from the future 
on behalf of the good guys. So you sort of have this Terminator setup where there's two opposite forces in the future who are running these operations in the past. And supposedly the protagonist is the, according to Neil, is the leader of this operation in the future that's working in the past. And so why would somebody who's working for the protagonist in the future, in the past, be ordered to kill the protagonist who needs to be able to survive to the future? Yeah. Like it doesn't make any, it doesn't make a lick of sense. I didn't get that one little bit. And I am not sure, maybe, maybe Nolan is as good a magician to make it all make sense somehow when I watch it a second time. But that piece, I kind of doubt it. That feels like a really big dangling question mark. Yeah, I think the only thing that you would, I think there's a few parts that you would see differently watching it the second time. And I don't think that's one of them. Right. That's one of those where it's like, you just have to accept that time travel stuff is never going to work. Because again, to disassemble and hide the algorithm so that nobody can build this stuff in the future prevents you from being a bit, from having been able to amend anything in the past or done any of these operations or you know whatever the case may be. And so it all falls apart, just like at the end of Avengers uh, Endgame, right? Yep. Where all of a sudden... You know, the whole crucial thing about their time travel scheme was that they had to get the pieces back to their right places in history so that all of history could occur up to that point the way it had previously. And except that Cap decides to go and live an entire life. Wrong, wrong. When he was supposed to be frozen in ice. Yeah, yeah. That is like that completely unravels the everything you've just done. It unravels the entire MCU. It did not ruin the movie for me, but it was inconsistent with the story. And that right. bothered me a lot. It really did. Now, there were other aspects of, of Tenet that I thought worked really well with the with the time travel conceit. And I think that, that Neil's character worked really well. The idea that he was this mysterious character. At first, he's supposed to be sort of an assistant. And then all of a sudden, he knows more than the protagonist. And then it's unveiled that he actually, the protagonist actually hired Neil to do what he does. Um, I thought that that was pretty effective. Yeah, it worked for me in the conceit of the movie as we are discovering things very, very similar to what Nolan did in Memento, where he keeps the, the viewer in the dark with the protagonist. I mean, ultimately, Tenet is... Uh, a sci-fi version of Memento. Like, let me take what I, let me take like what I did stylistically in Memento and actually make that the storyline in a sci-fi movie and I'll call it Tenet. So I, I didn't mind that. Yeah. He kept us in the dark and just revealed things as they came to the protagonist. So we were learning alongside the protagonist, having seen Memento, I was familiar kind of with that conceit and I was okay with it. And I thought it worked. Yeah. And I've bagged on Robert Pattinson a lot in the past. I've put him on my list of one of the worst five actors of all time. Uh, but this was the first non Twilight, non Harry Potter movie I'd ever seen him in. And he was very likable. He was very likable. And I thought very good. It makes you wonder what happened with those Twilight movies, honestly. Because right. Kristen Stewart, everything I've seen her in except for Twilight, 
she's been fantastic. It makes you wonder whether the uh, the guy who played Jacob in those in those Twilight movies whether there's an Oscar performance in in him yet. You never know because it seems like once those people left Twilight, they become came much better actors. Go figure. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like Robert Pattinson may be having something of a renaissance a la Natalie Portman after she almost got her career submarine by George Lucas in the Star Wars prequels. Uh, but then she went on to get an Oscar for Black Swan yeah. and other th- and, and done other great dramatic work. It's like, it seems like Robert Pattinson sort of having that moment in his own career over the last few years. I agree. I'm actually looking forward to seeing him as Batman. Huh? I never thought I'd say that. Look at that. Um, but I will say there were a few scenes that I thought would setting the final scene aside where it seemed like they were blowing up a whole few things, more than the few things that they had set up prior. Um, you know, the car chase scene, um, that was one I wanted to rewatch the first time after you saw it in reverse order the second time. And I thought, Oh, now I need to go see if I can notice some certain things that I didn't notice the first watch through as well as the opera scene. I, that was another one that I wanted to end the first airport hangar scene. Like those three scenes, once you see them or you really only see two of them a second time, but they make you want to see the first time again for a second time. Yeah. I think I think the scene that worked the best for me in terms of in terms of those repeating scenes. And honestly, I think this might be one of the best the best scenes period that I've seen in the last 2 or 3 years was was the combination of the protagonist fighting with himself yeah. in the Freeport, uh which is part of the, you know, the the airplane crashing in. I thought that was a tremendous reveal. The, the first action sequence is exciting. It's fairly typical. And you don't quite understand why Neil, all of a sudden, he he's fighting with his own guy and then rips off his masks and then throws it aside. And then he tells the protagonist, oh, we I took care of him. No need to worry about him. I took care of him. That was very confusing to me in the moment. But it it all worked once you saw that scene play out a second time. I thought that the the second playthrough, seeing it from the other point of view, was borderline brilliant. I thought it was fantastic, that whole sequence. Um, really well done. And it sort of encapsulates, it, it's a huge spoiler, but it really does encapsulate the charm of this movie, I think, was was that fight scene. Yeah. Though it also introduced into the the mix and the complexity of all the time travel the the weirdness of how um how they started to allow people to both travel backwards but then start to move forwards again in time in the same timeline with their past self where they're supposed to be moving backwards but all of a sudden they're they make a decision to stop going backwards as if they make a big deal about how when you're inverted, right. you can't breathe regular oxygen because your lungs can't process it in the inversion process the right way. So you need oxygen you know, to handle being inverted and working in the past. And yet they had to send the female lead, Elizabeth Debicki's character, into the past to interact with 
her husband to prevent, you know, in a, on a very specific day in the past. So they had to send her inverted self to, to keep him from killing himself. Right. And then we're like, Oh, she was, you know, it connects into her story about how her self going in regular time in the past right. had seen a woman dive off the boat right. and, and all that. So you're like, I get how it fits in story wise. Right. And yet she does that entire thing with no air mask. See, now I wonder, and this is really geeky, but I wonder whether there's something about, so you go backward in in time, right? So you're walking back, or you're doing that whole thing. Um, as you go backward, is there a point where all of a sudden time then can reset? And so you're on that different timeline, but you're on a more traditional timeline as opposed to being inverted. You revert to normalcy, even though you're, a week earlier. Well, and to me, I thought that you had to come back, like that there was a crossover point like that, but it had to be, you know, at a very specific moment. And that you then, when you hit that moment, you had to go back into your regular time, right? And it's this weird time loop. So for her to be in the past and not yet having gotten to that point where she reverses back into not being inverted into a regular timeline, I thought she had to be wearing a mask. It was it was something that they used twice because they did the same thing with Neil. Which except it that made less sense to me, by the way. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. It made even less sense, but it was the same like same seemingly the same concept that they never explained. But Neil except Neil's like, oh yeah, I just decided to start going forwards you know, about halfway through. Right, right. See for for a cat to to go back in time and then to operate the way she did for some reason that felt more sensical than for Neil to be part of the the blue team which was going backwards in time um to all of a sudden reverse that because there was another version of him going forward in time already like that was the whole thing you couldn't meet these people because they're you going backwards right right and so there was already a version of him going forward but then his backward version decides, oh, I'm going to flip halfway through. Yeah. And then also still doesn't need a mask. Yeah, that that feels odd to me. I won't say that it feels... There are things about this movie that I think are just wrong. Almost sloppy movie making. You know, I think I think that there are, there are moments where I think this could have been done better. I'm not completely sure whether that is one of those movie making sins or if we watch it a second time maybe it'll make more sense maybe there was an explanation we missed as you mentioned early on there was there was a lot of garbled dialogue that we didn't necessarily grab so what everything that you say could be true there could be another explanation for it somewhere in the movie and that's that's the difficult slash genius thing about nolan in this film is you know, you can have these conversations and you can, and I'm sitting there and like, this seems like a really glaring thing that either makes no sense or you didn't properly explain to us. And yet for the, you know, for somebody else, it might work entirely. And they're like, no, 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 I, I got it. Like it works. Yeah. You know? And I'm, but then I'm still left over here thinking like, yeah, but I don't think it does. And, but if you're just reacting to it, it all works like from a, Again, if you're not sitting there trying to overthink it, the movie itself works and ends up being more like it's one of those where it ends up being kind of more to me than the sum of its parts, where it's like when I take its parts 
and I take it down and strip it for parts. It's like, oh my goodness, like this was either lazy or sloppy or you just hoped we wouldn't notice or whatever, whatever my argument might be. But yet you put it all back together and I enjoyed the movie. Yeah, and I do think this is a movie that is designed to make you think, and yet Nolan wants you to think about certain areas and maybe skip over other things. There, there, there are points in this movie where you just gotta you gotta pretend that you're in a moving van going backwards along the interstate and just go with it. And I think that there are moments in this movie like that. At the same time, I do think that it it. Even this conversation, the way we're having it, illustrates the trust that that Nolan has built with his audience in a way. You know, if this was Michael Bay we were talking about, if this was a Michael Bay movie, we would say, oh, sloppy movie making. (laughs) But because it's Christopher Nolan, we say, ah, I wonder if I'm just not bright enough to get He usually knows what he's doing, so I must be the idiot. (laughs) it is tough and you don't want to pick at it because you do just want to enjoy it. And you almost feel, you can almost feel the specter of Christopher Nolan being like, stop it. Just watch the film. Like I made it for you to watch an IMAX. I wanted you to be distracted by a four foot, four story tall screen and speakers that, you know, you could fit an entire clown car into. Well, but, and you're right. He wants you to be distracted. He wants you to enjoy it, but he also, like any great, great magician, he wants you to think about what he's doing too, right? Just, just only certain elements. Yeah, he's. But it's, it's, it's remarkable the the level of. I don't know. He challenges. He challenges moviegoers in a way that very few blockbuster directing directors do. Yeah, well, that's fair. Yeah, he 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 sort of pushes his movie right into your face and challenges you to deal with it. He's yeah. going to throw a lot of stuff at you and by golly, you're just going to have to deal with it. All right. Keep up or, or don't. All right. There's something that I've learned about since recording with Paul. Just wanted to pause and do a brief history of the Sater square. S A T O R. Uh, this is something that is um, a Latin, like an ancient Latin palindrome, and it involves five different words, sator, S-A-T-O-R, arepo, A-R-E-P-O, tenet, T-E-N-E-T, opera, O-P-E-R-A, and rotas, R-O-T-A-S. Now, if you see these things spelled out, you'll see that each of them, sator, arepo, tenet, Opera and Rhodus is actually a the palindrome works and is a five line palindrome so that when it's layered and those words are stacked on top of one another uh, vertically and reading left to right that you spell Sator all around all along the top edge and that le- then the R turns to Rhodus and so really you're spelling Rhodus upside down and backwards um, and Tenet is the central. Um, figure inside this five-line ancient palindrome that's been dug up 
uh, all over Europe, and cryptologists and historians have been uh, debating what is the what was the purpose of this Latin palindrome, the Sador Square. You know, it it showed up in um, many different places. It showed up even in the excavation of Pompeii, which was an ancient Italian city. That got buried by an eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. Um, but the Sador Square, instances of it written or carved, have been found in Italy, in England, in Syria, in France, Portugal, and even Sweden. And they're dated anywhere between the 2nd century AD and the 14th century AD. And so, um, anyways, the literal translation of the Sador Square with the the word Sador, Arepo, Tenet, Opera, Rodas, has something to do, according to Vox, uh, an article on Vox.com by Alyssa Wilkinson, um, that there's a literal translation that has some sort of message about a farmer named Arepo and his plow. But the square has often been found in connection with churches, uh, whether like the actual buildings, chapels and abbeys. Um, and if you you rearrange the letters of Seder, uh, Arepo, Tenet, Opera, and Rodas, you actually get another palindrome uh, that is in the shape of a, um equilateral cross, and the word is paternoster, which uh, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but it translates to our Father, which is the opening, opening of the Lord's Prayer. And two of the letters, A and O, uh, that are left out, form fit in the crevasses of that equilateral cross and also could represent alpha and omega. So uh, you have some interesting, now some of those things are challenged by some scholars um, uh, who believe that these things could, that this this phraseology could be older than Christianity and perhaps um, be something that has been um, brought in, you know, kind of folded into the Christian faith. But regardless of that, um, you have something that's an interesting exploration um, of time and space in the ancient world, even if we don't know exactly what it was meant to be. Uh, And so anyways, that's just a little break, know-it-all break on the Sator Square that I wanted to drop in here, S-A-T-O-R. Look it up. Uh, Like I said, Alyssa Wilkinson for Vox did a, a pretty fascinating piece that explores more about the Sador Square and its origins and theories about it and how it maybe fits into Christopher Nolan's work in Tenet. And I thought it was worth dropping in here so you could take a look at that for yourself. One other thing I wanted to mention was that that I thought was maybe, I don't know, not sloppy movie making, but maybe just a little bit try hard that I thought you didn't need to do that was uh, with actually with the protagonist and specifically with John David Washington as the protagonist. One of the things now that I've seen him in a few different movies that I appreciate is this kind of cool, uh, steely glint that's just kind of always glowing in his performance. Like ultimately maybe he'll get typecast or maybe he'll break out of that. We'll see. But it's, you know, it stands in contrast to sort of the mercurial performances of a Denzel Washington who can alternate between deep rage and this manic jokester who has this wink and glint in his eye and then turns crazy on you. Like, you know, Denzel Washington's characters are, are kind of 
marked by a lot of emotional range from the goofy to the serious, to the angry, to the depressed, you know, whatever it is, he's just got this way of flowing in and out of emotions where so far John David Washington has really seemed to be really good at inhabiting this one steady glower, right? You know? Yeah. And there were a couple of moments where they tried to give him a Denzel Washington line. And I was like, that just didn't land. Just let him be him. Well, you know, and I wonder whether some of that was purposeful. It's it's interesting. Last podcast, we talked quite a bit about James Bond, right? This definitely had some elements of James Bond to it, I think. It, it, it felt like, in some ways, a very Christopher Nolan salute to James Bond on, on, on a certain level because— The villain, for sure. The villain, for sure, you had this sense that uh, the protagonist was going to sleep with this woman. There's that that sort of sexual energy between the two of them that, that never gets satisfied within the movie. But there's always this it, – it starts off – the movie starts off feeling very Bondian. He's playing a part. He's trying to get close to the bad guy by using this woman. And James Bond has always been, even when Daniel Craig has been doing it, he has been a pretty steady guy. Um, So in that way, I think that John David Washington and his even keel ability um, fits well within, within kind of that genre, that James Bond genre. Obviously, this is nothing like a real James Bond movie. But you could see these little touchstones, these little elements that reminded you of the Bond franchise. Well, only for I've only seen the Daniel Craig Bond movies, so <laughs> I don't have a deep knowledge of the the backlog that Paul does. <laughs> Paul, were there any other intricacies of the film that you wanted to tease out here? You know, I I did mention this in the spoiler free podcast. I thought Kenneth Branagh. He brought it. He was a very good bad guy. And I think a movie like this needs a good villain to work. He worked. Um, I was I was impressed by him. Interesting. I'll, I'll say I didn't think he was terrible, but I thought he was kind of mediocre, to be honest. Hmm. Um, I, I, I thought he was serviceable, but kind of... You know, I didn't end up buying his motivation. I didn't think as much as they tried to to tie it into something smaller and more intimate and ultimate, like it didn't land in in the performance. Like it was one of those things where that was where I felt like we needed to get to know his character and his character's relationship with Elizabeth Debicki's character, Kat, more in order to truly feel the pain and despair that would drive him or the madness that would drive him to this being his entire motivation. I understand. I, I thought it was fine, but it, for me, it didn't sell it for me. The movie worked because, you know, Christopher Nolan's flair for the drama and the, and the high concept storytelling. That was what kept it all together for me. I, I thought Kenneth Branagh was kind of forgettable. Yeah, no, I, w- I would totally disagree with you. Well, obviously. I'm happy to say that. I, I need to say that at least once a podcast. <laughs> I, but I do agree that I don't think his motivation worked on the level that it probably should have. I think the, the desire to take the world down with him, um, there are people who are like that. 
Certainly. But I don't think that the movie sold it. What's yeah, it didn't me, establish and sell it the way it needed to. Right. What sold me on Brana the character, though, was when he first meets the protagonist at that dinner party. Uh-huh. Man, is he menacing when he's telling the protagonist what exactly he's going to do to him. We won't get too descriptive about that, but man, that worked. And um, I thought that when when it looked like he was about to beat his wife with a belt studded with cufflinks, I could feel the menace. I could yeah. feel the tension in that scene. And that scene landed for me. I'll, I'll give him that. The, the dinner table one didn't, that was where I probably felt the most Bondian and that it reminded me of the villain from Casino Royale. Like, I might be a little too on the nose. That sounds, it's like both of you guys have this weird fascination with male genitalia, but, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and injuring it. But, okay. Uh, it's, it seemed a little, it seemed a little over the top for a Christopher Nolan, like, which is saying something. In a Christopher Nolan film about temporal pincher movements and <laughs> miniature temporal pinchers that are actually a part of a bigger temporal pincher and the grandfather paradox, like it's all so over the top that it feels odd to say that about that scene, but you know, that's a, what it was for me. In a way, the dialogue is a perfect example of Christopher Nolan because the words were just so <sighs> terrible. But the way he delivered them was so chilly, so even keel. That's that's it was a little too Shakespearean for me personally. So. <laughs> well, and Brana is a Shakespearean actor. I will say it was funny to hear them uh, going waxing eloquent about the grandfather paradox on a personal level for me because I actually was obsessed with paradoxes in high school, and I had a buddy, um, and he and I would go to coffee shops as like juniors in high school and just talk about paradoxes and the grandfather paradox over, you know, some high fat, high sugar, uh, frosty latte of some kind and talk into the, until they would kick us out of the coffee shop talking about the grandfather paradox and other paradoxes. And so that also helped the movie land a little bit for me. And that like, Hey, I get that paradoxes are unsolvable. I'm just glad we're talking about them. This takes me back. (laughs) It was a very enjoyable movie. I thought that it it worked on a number of levels. Not quite sure if it worked on a few others. Yeah. But if you're ready to talk with us a little bit more or need somebody to talk with a little bit more about Tenet and the paradoxes within it, uh, we're on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. And until next time, we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. (laughs) 